Amen. Good, good morning, church. It is indeed a good morning to be here with you in the house of the Lord. For anyone who have, haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Greg Baker. I am not the normal teaching pastor here. I am a member here, and I do have the opportunity and the privilege to teach our middle school boys group that we call The Bridge. And every once in a while, I do get to preach. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John in chapter 2. That's where we're going to start reading in verse 15. Now, as I read through these scriptures, I want you to look out for or keep a few things in mind. The first is contrast. Throughout John's letters and his gospel, he does a great job of drawing these lines, of creating these contrasts that make it easier for us to understand things. Look for those this morning. Another is tension. John wants us to feel some tension in these, in these passages, in these texts, in these verses. He uses this tension. Life is one that will be filled with urgency, um, but not one that should be filled with anxiety. It should be one that's filled with a sense of responsibility, but again, not something of, with worry. The last thing is just the name of the sermon series, which is belong. I want you to think about that word belong as we move through these passages. So let's pray once again, and then I'll start reading. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here as your people this morning. We thank you for the wonderful blessing that it is to celebrate baptism. We thank you for that wonderful just proclamation from Cason this morning about who you are and what you have done in his life. We're so thankful as a church to have seen him grow and come to love you um, and to serve you in the ways that he has. I pray now that as we your message to the hearts of the people in this room, and it's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen. So verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Three guesses. Which one of our things is most prominent in this first section? It's contrast, right? It's super clear. There's worldliness and there's godliness. There's things of the Father and things of the world. There's things that pass away and there are things that are forever. There is a line. But as we dig into the about the worldliness side, because you and me are part of the world, the beautiful creation is part of the world. John wrote for us in his gospel that God so loved the world. So what is this referring to? What is this other aspect of worldliness that that we should be moving away from? John Calvin said it this way, the world here in this passage should be understood as, quote, everything connected with the present life apart from the kingdom of God and the hope of eternal life. We aren't to resist natural art order. We aren't to 
move away from good and perfect things that God has created and put, in, created and put into our lives. Instead, we need to take verse 16 and we need to use that as an instruction for how to read verse 15. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions. These things that draw our gaze away from the eternal to the temporal. Those things are the world that he's referring to. Those are the things that we should, in some sense, hate. And if we're honest, those things sound exactly like what our culture is moving towards. One pastor says this, In our age, filled with advertising, rock stars, supermodels, and celebrities, it is not an overstatement to say that if worldliness means living only to please our flesh and pursue what our eyes lust after, so that we can arrogantly boast about our conquests and accomplishments, then worldliness is a synonym for America. that's not society that has abandoned and rejected the idea that our identity is in something greater than ourselves. And we are made in God's image to worship him, to find our identity in him. And when that identity is stripped away from us, worship doesn't go away. Worship just moves it's just translating into what it's just translated into whatever else you're putting in that god box. And loving the world doesn't just happen on the big macro societal scale. It happens every day on the minute by minute, decision by decision scale in your life and in my life. My guess is that most people in this room are not openly and proudly rejecting the Word of God. If you did, you probably wouldn't be here. But we do. So now, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. The Christian life is a constant fight against these urges of the flesh. Even here in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There is a constant fight in the Christian life. Church, this really is something serious, and it's something that I want us to ask some questions of ourselves about. I want us to take some time and really think, what are the areas in your life where this worldliness creeps in? Where are the cracks and crevices that fill up with these things? When you're anxious, when you're worried, when you feel that sense of urgency that can be good, are you anxious? Are you urgent for the things or for the kingdom of God to be brought forward? Or are you anxious and worried and urgent about your kingdom? 
It's those areas that need our attention, church. It's those areas that we have to fight against, that we have to pray against, that we have to ask God to strip from us. It's those areas that we have to pay attention to and we have to find some accountability for. We have to things out of your life to your detriment. God is not saying, hey, all that other stuff would have been great, but, you know, just, just do this for me. He's telling us, orient yourself on me because I know what's best for you. Orient yourself on me because I love you in a way that you can never really understand. And I know that you're prone to wonder. I know that you're prone to run away and to look to other things. So stop. Look at me. Orient yourself on me. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. We have to keep a heavenly perspective. Let's continue to read in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. The one so, the last hour... You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists already have come, and this one is the Antichrist. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank Chad Poe for allowing me to teach on a text that is so clear and has no chance for stumbling blocks or controversy. (laughs) In all seriousness, I know we can start to read these things and get a little gun-shy, and just kind of be tempted to just, just, you know, just keep on reading. Just go on to the next thing. I was there like seven hours ago. <laughs> but I, I'm serious about there, this. There is a layer above that kind of technical detail. There is a layer above some of that stuff that gets messy and controversial. And that layer I actually think is most important. Um, that layer is really helpful to us, and it's not that complicated. Um, And it really does matter. So let's let's look at it. First, the last hour. Um, This language is used throughout the New Testament. It's kind of got a few synonyms. The last day, the last times. And it's tempting to to think, just because we're very time-consumed people, that this has got to mean that the second coming is really, really soon. Um, and it, it, it can mean that. There is a sense that that is true. But what's, what I think is much more helpful is that when we hear this language, we should think that the second coming is next. 
right? That's what's coming next. So we should feel, again, that sense of urgency. We should feel um, like there's something that we really need to do and really need to be a part of because we are in this time period. But equipping in the calling that we have in these last days, in these last hours, and that's what should be calling us to action. Look at these couple of passages that, that really help us. So this is from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The last days are the days after Jesus has been revealed to His people. This is from Acts chapter 2. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. The last days are the days when the Holy Spirit has been poured out onto us, onto times will come in these last days. So there is a sense of urgency here when New Testament writers um, use this language, but it is not because of an impending sense that the time period is coming to an end. It is because we have been given so much in this time period. We have been equipped with the Holy Spirit. We have been equipped with the fact that we know Jesus by name. We have the full scriptures here that we can read and we can know and that the Holy Spirit has promised to reveal to us. And we have been given a mission in these last days to evangelize the whole earth. So these last days are important, but they're important because they call us to something. The second little bit scary thing here is this whole idea of Antichrist, right? So what getting at? Why does he use that word? And luckily, when you look it up in the Greek, it's like exactly the same word. It's anti-Christos, right? And so, super easy to break down. Anti can mean one of two things. It can mean I'm against something, or it can mean I'm going to act or try to supplant something. I'm going to put something else in its place. And I think we pretty clearly see both of those in this text, the first mentioning of Antichrist in the passage is talking about a, a singular figure. Let's call that the capital A Antichrist, right? And John says, hey, you've already heard about this guy. You know that he's coming, but he doesn't really say how they know that or where he's coming from or when. And so again, we have to dig a little Further, and we find that this same concept of Antichrist, lawlessness. So I want to read this for us from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, keeping in mind this was written like 30 years before 1 John. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. 
He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he sits in God's temple, proclaiming that he himself is God. So what do we know? This, we know this capital A Antichrist, Jesus. But beyond that, he will try to supplant Jesus as the ultimate object of worship here on the earth. So he really checks both of those boxes. But perhaps the most important thing that we learn from this passage is that he's going to lose. What does it say? It says that he is doomed to destruction. If we read ahead in 1 John, we get one more piece of information that I think is really critical to what we want to learn here in chapter 2. And that, this is actually from 1 John chapter 4. It says, This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which will have been hearing about him, but his denial of Christ, his againstness with Christ, is already here. The spirit of those things is already here. It's been here for 2,000 years. It got here, or it has been here throughout these last days. That's why John talks about these many little a antichrists who they've already come. They were in the midst of these churches in Ephesus. They have heard the good news and they have rejected it. As I said, the believers that John is writing to here know this story all too well. Second and third John make it pretty clear that there was a little bit of almost a revolt from within their church and their churches that were meeting together. And it was a revolt led by a few, a few individuals who denied that Jesus was the Messiah, who denied that Jesus was the Son of God. They had more than their fair share of infighting, and so John is telling them this to say, protect yourself. He's telling them this to say, these antichrists, you've already experienced them, you will continue to experience them, guard your heart. By the way, Antichrist, probably not a, something you want to be a part of. Um, in gen- the, the Bible deals pretty, pretty harshly with people that would be in that camp. The book, the book of Jude says, or kind of relates them to the angels that followed Lucifer, you know, like the demons, not what you want. Deuteronomy 18 says the prophets who speak in the name of other gods will be put to death. Acts calls the false teachers savage wolves. Second Peter says that they're clear that none of them belong to us. It is going to be made clear. Not that they don't belong right now, that they never belonged. John deals with it plainly and practically, just like we would expect. They abandoned us. They went out from us. They heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Like, big equal sign, they never really loved us. They never really belonged. Once again, right, he's drawing this line. 
He's making this clear contrast. There are those who truly believe, those who have ears to hear, those who have been transformed, those who are anointed, and there are those who aren't. There's no in-between. There are those who know the truth. Please go home this week and read the book of John. Just read it. Because when you are reading the book of John, the gospel of John, it just brings this whole letter to life in a really cool way. Right? When we read about these contrasts of light and darkness, and you've just been kind of soaking in Jesus saying, like, I am the light of the world. When you hear these contrasts of truth and lies and knowing him and, and lying and being deceived in light of I am the way, the truth, and the life, it really is different. It really is beautiful. When you hear about that the power of the scriptures that we're going to talk about in a minute, and you've structure that really just, yeah, it just makes this all the more beautiful. So side note over, read the book of John. So we're talking about these contrasts. There are the ones who know the truth and there are the liars and deceivers. There are the ones who leave and there are the ones who persevere. John is teaching like many of the New Testament preachers teach or writers teach, just I would say especially Paul, that perseverance is the mark of a true believer, and abandonment of the faith shows that no saving faith was ever present. Read with me from 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, And the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge will give me on that day. And not only me, but all those who have loved his appearing. And and finally, right here in our passage from This morning, we see the reward for this perseverance. We see the result of this perseverance, this striving for the Lord. Verse 24, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you've heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. Church, we have to fight. We have to run. We have to keep laser focus on the things of heaven and not on work. But how do we do it? How do we know we're running in the right direction? Like, I'm on board. I want to be for Christ, not anti-Christ. But how do I do that? And John tells us right here, verse 26, I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So I'm giving you this warning. I'm giving you these guardrails. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. 
Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, remain in him. Church, we stay on the right path. We keep our aim true by remaining in Christ, by abiding in him, by abiding in the word. To remove location. It's about a closeness, not just geographically, but in purpose and in motivation. Abiding in Jesus and Him abiding in you is to be united with Him and consumed by His passion and His mission. For those who are saved and anointed with the Holy Spirit, those who abide in Christ, they have everything they need. We have everything we need to stay on the course right here. Right here. That is not to say that we can't learn from others. That is not to say that we shouldn't have teachers. But it is to say that if you have the Holy Spirit and you have a Bible, you do have all that you need. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We have the Spirit. We have our anointing so that we can understand truth. Chad makes a really interesting point whenever these sort of conversations comes up. And it's about like the Christian book industry. And I'm for the Christian book industry. But it does say something that we spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year on Christian books. And not a lot of Christians really, really read their Bible. Just think about that. It's not that they're wrong. It's not that they're bad. I think tons of them are good tools and helpful guides, but they can never replace this. This is the tool. This is the guide. This is the authority. This is the path through life, or you'll be lost. So for those of you who've been paying attention a little bit, um, you might have a question, which is like, hey, we've been through all the verses, and you said you were going to talk about three things, and you've talked about two things. Um, We talked about contrast a lot, right? We have godliness, we have worldliness, we have eternal, we have temporal. We have for Christ, we have anti-Christ. We talked about belonging. We talked about what it takes to belong in Him and what it means to belong in Him. Right? But what about tension? The tension is this. You can't give up the world and you can't love the Father without Him loving you first. Without the quickening grace of the Lord, you have no access to worship Him. If He doesn't pluck you out of your sinful ways, if you're not born again, it's not just that He won't be your identity, He can't be your identity. And if He's not your identity, He will never be the object of your affections. The tension is that you just can't run far enough. You can't run fast enough. There's no persevering down his path. 
unless he puts you on the path. Without his constant grace, mercy, and help, we will be struck down. We will be destroyed. You will be crushed. John knows that. And he's teaching this people that, as he has throughout this letter, that belonging to God isn't something that can come and go just like based on how well you're doing, that comes or goes on the basis of something as trivial or as ever-changing as our emotions and actions. Instead, it is cemented by the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 10 says this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the, fa- and, and the Father are one. Jude says this in verse 1, Jude, a servant of the Jesus Christ and a brother of James, those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And at the end of Jude, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of the glory, and to take away your blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a tension in this passage, and I think John is doing that on purpose, really in this whole level, this whole letter, between exhortation, go do the right things, and in promise, I, or Jesus accomplished this for you. He holds this tension because he wants to challenge all of his readers from the oldest and wisest to the youngest and the least learned. Over here, it's, it's be encouraged. The promises are true and they're good and the reward is great. But over here, transformed by the promise. That never comes, those never come independently of each other. He wants to challenge the readers of this book or this letter, to look deeply at their hearts, to determine if they're true believers. He wants to wipe out any, yeah, any unknown there. He wants to wipe out any chance that you would go before the Father thinking that you were saved when you weren't. Do you belong with the Father? Do you love the Father or do you love the world? Do you belong to the Father? Do you trust this book to determine the direction of your life? Yes? Fantastic. Keep going. Keep fighting. You have everything that you need. But if you don't know the answer to those questions, there's wonderful news. He abides in those who trust in His name. He lived the sinless life that you should have lived. He ran the race that you could not run. And he ran it fast, and he ran it far, and he ran it straight to a cross. For you. For you. If you have trusted in him, if you have believed in these things, if you do belong to him, then I would invite you to take communion with us today.
And I ask that you would take of the bread and take of the cup and, not, and don't just remember the reward, but remember the sacrifice necessary to gain it. I would ask that you would take these elements with a sense of thanksgiving, but also with a sense of calling to go out into the world on his mission. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, but some of this is a little confusing and you have questions and you don't... Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day once again. We thank you for these wonderful scriptures, these wonderful truths, these wonderful promises. Um, that you are mighty to save, that you are just to forgive. But we also thank you that we get to be a part of this mission, that you don't leave us at, at merely saved. You also change us. You change our hearts. You make us more like you. So I would ask that as we go out today, as we sing, as we share in communion, as we go back to our to our life groups and to our jobs and in just to everyday life, that we would take this with us. Um, that we would keep our eyes on you and not on the things of the world. That we would love you and strive for you and be on your mission and keep our focus where it needs to be and not on the distractions and the fadings of this world. We do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.